the Hand of Glory. In occult lore, the hand was cut from the corpse of a hanged thief and covered in virgin wax and the dead man's tallow. It is said to open any door. But how did the Hand of Glory come to have its fate entwined in the mysteries at the heart of Wormwood? Discover the secrets of this arcane appendage once attached to Dr. Xander Crow as we present Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory. Five thrilling tales of mystery and suspense that span the ages. Salary Farm, written by Jeremy Rogers, with acknowledgement to the work of Richard Matheson. Read by Chris Anderson. In his office, upon the sleek oak desk, is a high stack of loose white paper and one ballpoint pen. There is a window directly behind the desk, offering a successful view of downtown Los Angeles. Harry writes and opens his office door. He loosens his tie with one hand, timed precisely as his other is closing the door behind him. The first thing he does this morning is stand in front of the window. This is no different than any other morning. A telephone clatters faint from the office directly to his right. Harry knows the sound all too well, how the telephones here are meant to stir startled nerves into action. However, through the shared office wall, the effect is not the same. The ringing is not Harry's problem. So he disconnects and dreams. It's now when the smell of coffee seeps in from cross-hatched paths of co-workers traversing the passage outside his closed door. Harry never drinks the stuff, at least not until the afternoon when everyone else turns the knob in favor of scotch. The scent of fresh coffee has a way of denying Harry immersive reverie in the morning. He removes his jacket, and for the moment it takes him to walk to the coat rack by the door, he peels his eye off the window. Harry crumples his white sleeves up to his elbows and returns to the view. Five minutes past 9 a.m., the insufferable Nimrod from Creve Corps with bad ideas and nicotine-stained teeth arrives to answer the rattling phone in the office over. Harry was invited to sit in on his interview, and the first impression was that this fellow would be a handful. Apparently, management didn't heed the warning. Hello, Orson Theodore here. His Midwestern elocution comes muted through the wall. I know this is my first day here with the agency. A burst of wooden match interrupts his speech. In a moment, the sharp smoke will find way into Harry's office. But I had to make sure that his wife was... Harry tunes the dialogue out. Finally, she opens the blinds from the morning light. Harry stands and watches from his perch across the business center courtyard. Her blouse is open more than it was yesterday, allowing the fabric to stretch and part severely across her dark-skinned chest. He wonders if she can see him, too, or if the glare of the new day sun conceals his image behind his window. It's early still. By lunch, the executives and the secretaries from these neighboring buildings will drift into her establishment for upscale palm readings and spirit board games. Harry has never ventured down into her occult world. Maybe he'll call her today on his lunch hour. Will she know that Harry's been watching her? Of course, this is the same thought he has every day, and Harry knows he won't ever introduce himself. It's time to work now. Dread it all he wants, Harry knows that he really shouldn't put it off any longer. Harry removes his watch 
and positions it thoughtfully on his desk beside the mound of clean paper. The Timex was his Father's Day gift last year. His sleeves are already rolled to his elbows, but he checks them again. He doesn't understand his career. Why did they come to him and offer him this particular job? Harry steps out of his office with a sigh. The door opens into Orson Theodore's neighboring office. The same floor-to-ceiling window that Harry has is pasted here with newspaper clippings, alternating obituary lists, and pharmaceutical adverts. The glow is sepia, swirling hot with burnt channels forced into motion from the tips of Lucky Strikes. The little one's been dead for two days already, and he hasn't caught on. She's quite the ghoulish sight, too. Orson looks up as Harry closes the office door behind him. Hold, hold on, Kalila. I need to go, darling. It's, it's time I get back to work. Harry pauses in the doorway. He looks down at his feet and how the swinging door has tugged at the plastic covering in the corner. He isn't sure which administrative assistant was tasked with this particular job, but Harry feels they did the work well as everything is mostly lined with milky semi-transparency. From the floor to the walls to the surface of every piece of sleek oak furniture, this office has been meticulously prepared. Harry pushes his shoe down on the loose corner edge to reseal the protection and make it all a tad more seamless. The plastic crinkles under his slow but progressive steps inward. Mr. Wrightson, Orson stands quickly, fumbling to return the phone to the cradle and crush out his cigarette. It's nice to finally meet... Kalila, is she your wife? Harry stalls the proceedings with a question, and another before giving time to answer the first. Where does the name Kalila originate? Uh, in Haiti, sir. Orson steps across the tarp-covered floor with his hand extended. She's Monbo, mediator between humans and spirits. It's quite the pretty name, Harry says. The two men shake hands, one with an impression in mind and the other sopping in sweat. Harry has learned the most efficient angle to position a body against the edge of a desk in order to break the head free from the torso and direct blood flow away from his white shirt and leather shoes. Might as well do it now, he thinks. In the afternoon, Harry waits for the mailroom to send a courier to come pick up the packaged severed head for transport upstairs. He has cleaned it neat, even brushed the blood from the teeth. As usual, he pauses momentarily to speculate who and for what purpose the heads serve. Perhaps they're eaten. Harry knows better than to allow himself to drift down this nightmarish path. Harry steps to his office window. Her blinds are closed. He is ready for his afternoon cup of coffee now. The alarm clock wakes Harry. His hand is on his wife. His fingers must have fumbled down between her legs as they both slept, and now are numb from constricted circulation. Oh, your hand is so cold. Harry's wife, Norma, turns and whimpers. Harry stretches across the bed and slams his uncoordinated, deadened hand across the alarm clock with enough misjudged force to unhinge the metal hammer and pinch a nasty gash across his palm. He barely feels it. God damn it, Harry says, and sits up in bed. Norma rolls onto her side for a better look. Her long raven hair falls over her face and moves in currents across her widening green eyes. She pulls herself through the bedsheets, slinking like a snake, her eyes on the blood pooling in Harry's cupped hand. Oh, baby, she coos, then suctions her damp mouth onto the wound to clean him. Her body grows on the bed, 
following his hand as it rises to advance her slight sleep attire off over her head. In a moment, they're both naked, speckled cherry and kissing. I had a bad dream, Harry blurts out suddenly during a gasp of fresh air away from Norma's aggressive mouth. He wasn't sure why he was trying to tell her this now. You think it might have something to do with the new microwave oven? Sure, Harry. Go ahead. Tell me about your nightmare, Norma replies, though not convincingly in favor of continuing the discussion. Later. Harry knew that he was a fool for losing focus during her uninhibited mood. His memory of the nightmare fades. Harry steps out of the bathroom, buttoning his white shirt, releasing a cloud of steam from the shower that hovers over the bed like a ghost above Norma's naked body. Her fingers absentmindedly caress her goaded nipples, an act that lingers her sexuality, even though she's close to nodding back to sleep. Your grandfather called yesterday, says the house in Allendale needs to be painted this summer. She spreads her legs, completely exposing herself to Harry. He says your grandmother sends her love. Oh, he's seeing her again, is he? Harry coils his tie around and under his starch collar. His bandaged hand is spreading blood from his palm as he leaves a brush stroke of red on his white shirt. Maybe we should move him out here with us. Norma sits up and pulls the covers around her. He won't ever leave that rickety old house. As there is no access or address, the house must then not exist in sooth, he used to like to say. Harry becomes distracted. The reminiscence of childhood horrors spawned within that house on the edge of the marsh make him feel like a little boy scared of every long shadow again. Harry sits on the edge of the bed and puts on his shoes. Norma pulls herself up behind him, wraps her slender arms around his shoulders. She nestles her head against his neck. That rickety old house will be yours one day, and all those dusty antiques cluttering the shelf could really make life easier for us if we can find the right buyer, Norma whispers into his ear. We can't sell any of that junk, Harry says. There's nothing there but a second-rate collection of spook house memorabilia. It's worthless. You'd be surprised by what people would do for scary things, Norma smiles in a way that she would never let Harry see. What if we don't bring him to live with us? He's an old man. He's all alone on the East Coast. How long do you think he'll last if we don't do anything for him? Harry, would it be so bad if we left him alone and let him die? What's with all the talk about my grandfather dying? Harry rubs at a scuff on his leather shoe. Sure, there might be something to be had by selling the property to the New Jersey Conservation Society, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Yes, let the bird watchers tear that ramshackled house down. We'll auction everything inside, and then the three of us can... Norma sinks her fingers into Harry's shoulders. Her words turn into an undertone as she rises to her knees for the raised leverage to squash him down into the bed. Whether this is an act of tender concern or the start of an aggressive attack, Harry is oblivious. And then the three of us can be together again. Harry drops his head. He says, My grandmother died of cancer 25 years ago. My grandfather believed that she found her way back to the house now and then to look in on the collection. That scared me to death when I was a kid. If any house could be haunted, Norma tells Harry turning his head gently to the side so they can look into each other's eyes. Sell it. Sell the house, Harry. Let it be somebody else's nightmare. It's not the house so much. Not really. It was the celery farm. During the summers when I was made to visit, I'd lie in my stale-smelling bed at night and listen to the noises outside of my window. 
I could hear the birds and the hissing and gurgling of the marshland. When I would close my eyes, I would see the ephemeral shadows of the Indians who used to inhabit the creepy patch of land. It was blood-curdling to think of the specters of painted warriors creeping outside my window in the dark. Harry turns pale with his words. You were a child, Norma reassures him. My grandfather was convinced the celery farm was the very element that emboldened the house. That tendril of wetland leached into the property and let her return home. Harry stands. He collects his wallet from the bedside table, then picks up his Timex. It used to be the bog stood well over a hundred yards from the house. Last I saw it, it extended beneath the foundation. Give it enough time? I'm sure the celery farm will consume the house and swallow it whole. Harry kisses Norma on the forehead. I'm late for work. The golden sun blinds Harry as soon as he finds his way into the hallway. He moves through the kitchen and finds a half-eaten bowl of cereal in the sink, the discoloration of milk left in a glass. Through the little window over the sink, he watches the school bus retract the stop sign and pull away. The elevator bell sounds. The metal door splits in the middle and spills businessmen and secretaries across the building corridor. The similarity to gutting a monstrously large animal is lost on all. Harry walks a few paces behind his associates. There was a time when Harry was the shining light of the agency, but those days have long since dissipated as he settled gently and squarely in the middle. As is typical with every morning, there isn't any conversation that involves him today. A sensation of dread consumes Harry as he steps near his office. He recalls the grisly nightmare with a sickening flare triggered by pulse flashes behind his heavy lids. How the man's neck splintered drearily within the skin sheath. Harry could distinctly feel the neck muscles resist the strain with rigidity before succumbing to listlessness. Once the crackle of spine had shattered into workable edges, it was just a matter of instigating the bones internal to cut the stressed skin bent across the edge of the desk. As soon as the jugular vein was open to the elements, Harry knew the fissure was there and the head could be ripped from the convulsing body. Damn, he thinks with an inundation of disgust. Could I have it in me to do something so violent? It felt so real, so natural. Harry feels nauseated. The door to the office right of Harry's is wide open. As the janitor wipes streaks from the window in long, shrilling arcs, Harry watches. The office is spick and span, he notices. The oak furniture has been dusted, the desk supplies fully stocked. The carpet has been vacuumed. The new employee from the Midwest is due to start work today. Still, Harry questions whether this clean staging is for preparation of a welcome or for removing incriminating evidence. Harry opens his office door and, as usual, loosens his tie as he closes the door behind him. He hooks his jacket on the coat rack, then ambles to his desk where he pushes a few folders aside, spewing reports. His desk is a mess of incomplete work and paper refuse made into characters of black stained styrofoam cups and burnt orange cigarette filters. A family portrait is knocked from the corner of the desk to the floor. The glass crackles across the frame like branching lightning. Down to his knees to gather the broken pieces, Harry picks shards of glass off the photograph. The shot was taken last year at one of the department stores downtown, the sort of place that lures mothers in with cheap holiday backgrounds pulled down on rolls of paper. Do you want a cartoonish snowland with a leering snowman? Or perhaps a manger 
with the fiery meteor star of Bethlehem moments away from catastrophic impact. Looking, Harry smiled broadly in the photograph, though his eyes diverted away from the lens seemingly just before the photographer released the shutter. He remembers that his sideburns were shorter then, and his eyes less fatigued. To his side, under the protective shield of his arm, Normal was caught in the middle of a blink, an effect that left her appearing blind. Harry always did love her. He pinches a sliver of glass from the center of the frame to better see his daughter. She was four years old in the photograph, just a cherub of puffy cheeks, beaming excitedly front and center of her two parents. Her dress was so goddamn pretty, Harry recalls with a swift tinge of sadness. It was rather like something a pampered rich kid's doll would be dressed in on Sunday morning. Harry picks at the scratched paper sheen across the middle of his daughter's face. Matilda, he mumbles. Matilda, baby. A red drop explodes across little Matilda's innocent smile and highlights her pale hair with a foreboding horror. Harry realizes that he's bled enough to soak through his bandage. He attempts an ineffective swipe to clean the photograph, but it's an act that increases the blot. He returns the frame and pieces of glass to his desk. Harry stands and slackens his bandage as he steps to look out his window. Comfort comes with the monotony of everyday action. Her blinds are closed. Harry considers her dark skin and forms a connection to the Haitian name that populated the horrific moment of his lingering nightmare. Kalila. Could that really be her name? Perhaps Harry had heard it spoken by one of his associates in the elevator after a lunch-scheduled tarot card reading. Such things managed to sneak traction into the mind and hide just before jumping out with a shriek in the late hours of the night. Kalila, a woman Harry has never met, has somehow penetrated his subconscious and turned him into a somnambulist. Then a knock at Harry's office door. It opens with a crack, then all the way. Mr. Wrightson, you're wanted up on 29. What? Harry answers too quickly. A reactionary response sped up to shatter and obscure his mental fog. But nobody's allowed up on the top floor. Two joined copper doors loom at the end of a narrow passage. Harry walks the conduit alone, his shoes starting an echo with each push down onto the cold marble. Harry straightens his tie and twists his neck and notices a track of five parallel scratches left in the dark mahogany walls. These marks run a few feet before ending at a murky stain in the wood. He stands at the door and raises his crimson hand to knock when the left copper access opens on its own agreement. He doesn't see the figure concealed behind the angled door. Come in, Mr. Wrightson. A disembodied male voice registers deep and calm. Harry steps into the suite, unable to form the slightest inkling about what he's walking into. The floor-to-ceiling windows soar on top of the Los Angeles basin and encourage a blinding effect, especially after the conditioning of the dim corridor. You've been with me for many years, Mr. Wrightson, the voice continues, brought into this agency on the recommendation of a particular sort of colleague of mine. I was never clear for what purpose you were meant to serve, yet day in and day out, you punched the clock and filled your desk with trivial distractions. You brought your wife out here from the East Coast. The two of you made a girl and crafted a complete family life. You lived, Mr. Wrightson, as well as anybody can, all while you served me in waiting. Alas, 
I now know what to do with you. Harry drops his head, acquiescent by some force. He stands in the heart of the cold, expansive room. His feet shift within peculiar swirls and ciphers etched into the marble. His eyes attempt to adjust to the direct morning sunlight beaming into his face. Characters situated in front of the windows begin to form lithe edges and blackened centers. One willowy silhouette slithers his hand, and the yellow light behind him seems to palpitate. Harry tries to talk, only to find his mouth too painfully dry for his tongue and lips to function. A bead of sweat squeezes out of the crease in his forehead. Harry looks down at his shoes, unsure why he feels so goddamn uncomfortable. Straight at the floor, beneath his spit-shined shoes, Harry traces the incisions in the marble. His eyes bustle along each curve and indention, and he becomes dizzy following the strange pattern of plumage. He musters all of his nerve to look up at the indistinct figure backlit against the window. I've been busy with the preparations for the new agent starting today, sir. His office will be next to my own, so I'll be able to better help him settle in, Harry says as best he can. Hushed laughter sounds from behind Harry. Footsteps edge closer. He wants to turn around and glance over his shoulder, but finds he can't move. This is your last day here, Mr. Wrightson, the featureless man intones. What? what? You're firing me? Harry is shocked, his nerves clearly getting the best of him. He flashes back to the distinct fingernail scratches in the mahogany corridor. I assure you, it's not such a mundane act, Mr. Wrightson. You see, the featureless man stirs, unable to mask his anticipation. It has come to my attention that your grandfather in Allendale, New Jersey, has died. A rational man would want to take leave and attend to matters. Harry shudders realizing his recent anxiety can be contributed to the emotional pain of a dead relative. Harry can't help himself. He chuckles. With all honesty, sir, I haven't really decided what to do with my grandfather's estate, Harry says, his vocal cords loosen. But I thank you for your compassion. Estate, laughs the featureless man. I'd hardly refer to that wobbly shack built upon septic marshland much of an estate. Each to his own, I suppose. Wait, how did you know? Harry dissects the suite and finds a feminine outline of the occult woman from across the courtyard. His voyeuristic distraction is so close. Harry feels a strange sexual arouse even now. The sunlight distorted the window and swathed her body standing in front of it, and Harry couldn't see her until this moment. Hold on, Kalila. I need to go, darling. She smiles sympathetically once their eyes meet. What is she doing here, Harry thinks. The tension returns with a tingling fury as he fears a game is being played. Is she going to channel my dead grandfather? Harry tries to move, to run away or to charge forward with clenched fists, but his feet are locked on the symbol underneath. His suit weighs heavily on him, churning heat and sweat, clinging and bunching up in every uncomfortable way. Her name is Kalila, Mr. Wrightson, the featureless man begins. Much more than a luring collection of meat and bone, Kalila has been an invaluable asset of mine for many years, using her gift to scour the shadows for those who will reveal themselves to be of varying importance to me. Sometimes the reason takes time to become clear. Patience is a virtue even to a creature as endless as you. Kalila speaks with a strong accent, her voice as womanly as her form. Kalila... The featureless man raises his thin arm, fluttering the light beneath it with an occasional faint oblong circle and streak of color that darkens the sun. Brought you to me because of an item you would 
come to possess. It's a special hand, severed from a barbarian thief of the two Saparas and preserved in tallow. It is a hand of glory, Mr. Wrightson. I don't know what you're talking about, he cries. I don't have anything like that. But you do, Mr. Wrightson, since your grandfather has died and the collection has become your own, the featureless man assures. I have taken the necessary steps to guarantee that you transfer ownership of the hand to me. You're threatening me? Harry struggles to move. What? Why? Why can't I move? What's going on? Harry wrestles against the imperceptible strength binding him to the demonic etching in the marble floor. His muscles undulate in desperation to draw him away. But he finds, to all of his horror, a static force that counters his every twitch with a vice-like grip. The featureless man turns his head into the sunlight to watch Kalila step forward. Poor silly man, we're not threatening you, says Kalila. We're offering you something lovely. Kalila parades confidently across the floor over to Harry. She places her delicate hands on each side of his head. Her dark fingers are a splintering contrast to his colorless skin. Harry stops combating his escape. His chest still heaves with sharp pains. His intense sweat turns his skin cold and slippery, yet his limbs swiftly fall still at Kalila's touch. Harry holds his eyes onto hers. Her shiny black orbs are stunning and kind. Harry feels his pulse settle and coolness relieve his burning forehead. Everything is going to be fine. Kalila smiles at Harry. Then Harry screams with sanity, thrashing abandon. She leans in for a kiss. Her tongue flits into Harry's contorted and agape mouth. She pulls her body tight with Harry, ensuring that her every curve finds firm resistance against Harry's tension, again distracting his terror with a conflicting sensation. His howls turn to mumbles, then to silence. Kalila purrs as she kisses him. Her hands cross into his sticky hair at the back of his head and her fingers tighten into a fist. She moves to Harry's neck and spills hot breath into his ear as she probes her tongue into him. Harry... I am something like an angel, Kalila whispers. The sweet transpires into a mush around Harry, pliable and dripping like a melting room of wax, spilling yellow sunlight into blinding flares as the windows lose their frames. Harry liquefies too, blending into the floor on his back, sliding with the ooze. All the while, Kalila hovers above him, soothing him with lovable touches. Everything is going to be fine. The soft details of the room throb in a fever and alter into the faint likeness of Harry's house. Harry is tangled in the sweaty sheets of his bed. He fights through the paralysis to rise. Dragging the weight of his legs, Harry moves through the hallway of his house, alongside a row of family photographs, towards the kitchen and the tinny rumpus of morning cartoons. The kitchen is derelict, the side door outside partly open. There's a half-eaten bowl of cereal in the sink, the discoloration of milk left in a glass. Through the window over the sink, Harry watches his little girl play in the front lawn. The Plymouth Belvedere turns slowly around the corner of the block down the street. The engine surges and the car heaves forward, faster and faster. The deep power increases the level of thunder until the car jumps the curb and bounces over the sidewalk. It crashes into the little girl, destroying her frame in a sickening crunch. My little girl... Harry mouths the words, too stunned for much sound or inflection. 
Harry rushes from the window and through the side door. Into the front yard, he drops to his knees. He collects Matilda's bloodied and limp flesh from under the hissing grill of the car. Harry cries. A coldness seeps into his core as he looks upon his daughter's lifeless eyes, still abnormally round and large. She's gone, her eyes transfixed on Harry's, but seeing nothing. The car door opens on the driver's side. The metal latch releases a crack into the world. Orson Theodore from Creve Corps crunches the debris-riddled grass with his neatly polished black leather shoes, careful not to let the spillage from the girl rise above his tread. He looks down at Harry and cocks his head to the side at the gentleness in how he cradles his daughter. Orson flares a match and lights a cigarette. It's nice to finally meet you, Mr. Wrightson. I have every confidence that I'll move into your position without much in the way of kinks. I was thinking I might slide the marsh fern away from the window and over to where the coat rack stands. Orson exhales yellow smoke and extends his hand. Harry can't speak. He can't cry any longer. He's numb. The passenger door of the car opens, this time the softest of sounds. Kalila moves ethereally around the gory front of the car. She kneels beside Harry and his dead daughter in the grass. And for the longest time, she does nothing but watch them. Kalila is saddened as she places her hand on Matilda's forehead. Everything is going to be fine, Harry, Kalila tells him warmly. Kalila positions her arm under the girl. It's not until she steals the child off of Harry's lap that he notices anything or anyone else in this front yard. Harry stares into the ether, inactive and disoriented, while Kalila carries Matilda's flaccid body to the back seat of the Belvedere. Norma is propped up in a relaxed position in the back, her throat slit days ago, leaving the spilled blood down her front time to coagulate and turn putrid black. Kalila places Matilda beside her mother. Orson flicks the smoldering tip of his cigarette on the lawn, then swoops behind the wheel. His door slams, and he's ready to go. Kalila stands and watches Harry for a moment longer, though, knowing that Harry will not be able to move, even as his murdered family is driven away from him. Kalila sits in the car and closes the door. Latch. Harry wakes up on the floor. The light in the suite is more than blinding now. It's painful. He clinches his eyes shut and rolls over on his side, curling his limbs up tight. It's all so real to him now. They're dead. Harry feels it. He remembers it. I want the hand, Mr. Wrightson, the featureless man speaks. I don't know where it is. I don't know if I have it, Harry whimpers. Give me everything, and I will give you everything in return, the featureless man speaks. I will give you back your family. They're dead, Harry says. Kalila touches Harry softly. She's so soft, so caring, that Harry can't resist wrapping himself into her lap, despite knowing better than to seek comfort from one of his pitiless manipulators. She strokes his hair. Give us everything your grandfather possessed, everything he had collected in his house. We will find what we are looking for. Then we will return your family, Kalila tells Harry. But you can't, he says. You killed them. Harry, Kalila smiles at him. I know a special trick. You remember the salary farm? He left his car where the paved road ends, 
Harry is on foot the rest of the way to the house. The ground is already wet with the sewage from the lake. An army of insects buzz inharmoniously, sight unseen. Harry notices a black and white warbler through the thicket of overgrowth. He remembers these tiny birds from his youth and the summers spent with his grandparents. Their abundance in the marsh was always bordering on becoming a plague. The bird flutters away, suddenly, spooked by a distant noise. Was that laughter, Harry thinks? He follows the direction of the bird, compelled to stay after it for some reason he doesn't pause to give himself. Through the purple flourishes and reed grass, Harry sinks ankle-deep into the muddy edge of the foul water. The woodland is around the bend, just past the barbary. Harry looks up and catches sight of a blackbird gliding towards the tree line. The bird squawks, ineffectively masking the hint of something else in the breeze. Laughter. The blackbird disappears on a branch. This is where Harry needs to go, along a path farther away from the house. Harry remembers that laugh. It was Christmas morning, 1965. He had purchased an expensive necklace from a department store display that he had found Norma lingering around. When she opened the gift that early morning, all she could do was laugh. Harry always did love her. A gust of wind flounces through the cattails ahead of Harry. The whistle is melodic and sweet, and Harry hears his little girl call his name, the same jubilant way she did every night when he walked through the front door of his house after a day at the office. Daddy! Harry lifts his feet out of the mud. He hikes north, stepping over the invasive multiflora toward the wooded trees where the birds wait for him and caw. Wormwood, a serialized mystery, is a podcast production of Habit Forming Films, LLC. Original music compositions by Todd Hodges. Introduction and credits read by Joe J. Thomas. The Wormwood writing staff includes David Acampo, Jeremiah Allen, Rob Allspaugh, Paul Montgomery, Jeremy Rogers, and Tiffany K. Whitney. Wormwood created by David Acampo and Jeremy Rogers. Copyright 2009. Wormwood cannot be reproduced in part or whole without the express written consent of its creators. For more information on the cast, creators, and individual episodes, please visit us on the web at www.wormwoodshow.com. Thank you for listening, and welcome to town.